matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Welcome to Matters of the Mind on this October 14th, which follows in the air. And it's great. Beautiful weather, beautiful people continually listening to our show, and we are so grateful for that. Uh, with me always is my co-host and producer, Todd Miller. So, Todd, how are you today? Doing wonderful. I mean, it's a great day and, and uh, another great topic. You know, I just love my, my, my weekly hour uh, spending with you and, and a great guest talking about all things about the mind. Absolutely. And folks, continue to keep the emails rolling, coming my way. absolutely love them. I love your interest in the show. I love your ideas about the show. And also, I get a fair bit of messages on Facebook as well, so keep those coming. And uh, we got a great guest today. She's going to be joining us in about 15 minutes. It's <laughs> Her name is Annie Fox. Annie Fox is an internationally respected parenting expert, family coach, and trusted online advisor for teens. And she helps a lot of people, and she's got great books, um, not only uh, in, in terms of teaching kids uh, become good people, but great resources for parents. And she was somebody we've been waiting to get on her show for a few months now, and I'm really excited to have her on. Yeah, I was poking around her website this morning and uh, just amazed at the amount of, of information she's got there for parents. She's broken it down into three sections. I'm a teen, I'm a parent, I'm an educator. So there's there's tools that are pointed towards different audiences, which are really cool. And one of the coolest things is that she is everywhere in the digital world. So she does online, um, as you said, trusted online advisor for teens. She's going to where teens are these days. And, and that's not to put anything against people who practice in person by no means, but to have to get the opportunity to spend some time with someone like Annie from the comfort of your living room or den or wherever your computer device is. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, it, it's kind of interesting because Annie and I have talked about this before. Um, and, oh gosh, a couple of weeks back we had um, Lynn Kenny on, who's a tremendous uh, expert psychologist. Uh, and actually Annie and um, Lynn are very good friends uh, and do work together in certain genres. And it really is interesting, Todd. Who would have ever thought... <laughs> You know, our generation and even any generation before that and even the ones after that, there would need to be coaches for kids outside of the family, outside of the parents being the coach. Yeah, I mean, from just thinking back about my teenager, teen, teenage years and even before that, there weren't so much coaches as there were people that were corrective in nature. So where there was a discipline problem, there was someone that was um, assigned to the child to help them work through whatever difficulties they were experiencing. But there, there, it was always negative connotated, So, meaning that it was corrective. And this seems to be more what we're what we're transitioning to is more preventative. So it's let's we've noticed a few things with little Johnny and before it gets worse or it could be worse. Let's get him to speak to somebody. Let's find somebody that can help him. He's struggling a bit. And, you know, as we've talked about many, many times with with people on this show, doing this preventative stuff is 
a way to really cut down on the legal justice system, you know, heading off little Johnny's stay in the pen for 15 years and, and whatever other associated costs go with that. You know, it's really unthinkable that we would be here, but I think it's a good thing. It really is, and it's interesting because I go back to my days doing my master's degree and then my PhD, where the concept had come out as, you know, you have family counseling. And I remember back in the day, you would not use the term coach, so to speak. And even um, talking to peers of mine and colleagues today, and even some friends prior to having um, Annie on her show today, you know, you know, they ask, well, what does she do in that? Like, how are you connected to her and all that stuff? And you know, I explained a little bit about her. Um, in fact, to somebody when I was I was talking to Annie, if, oh gosh, it's a few months ago now in the summer, and um, you know, I bring up that she's a family coach. And friends of mine are looking at me and going, what do you mean? Like, what sport does she do? <laughs> you know, and it's just a really interesting concept. And you hit it, Todd, that back in the day, it was kind of like a disciplinary thing that you didn't want. And, and you know, I and I have, you know, people have a lot of issues with the term discipline versus punishment in, you know, in families where a lot of times in my day, the, the coaching, <laughs> I saw some kids being coached by their parents and it was a wallop, a smack. Yeah. And that was, you know, basically it wasn't coaching. It was just pure punishment slash discipline because they were used in the same vein. And I think the term coach and that stuff has really put, how should we put diplomacy on the fact that uh, a lot of times now it's to alleviate the stresses that go on within a household where parents, especially ones that are, you know, coming from, their own upbringing where it was like, you know, a cyclical thing where there was yelling, screaming, and even potential physical, you know, reprimands being brought on. And there, how should we say, you cannot think emotionally. So your feelings are getting the better part of you. And then this is hence where a lot of this coaching came from, where I would see them back in the day when I was doing counseling and therapy as a family therapist for a while, where I was the intervention, so to speak. Mm. And they were there, Todd, interestingly, saying, okay, Doc, can you coach us on how to, you know, not go nuts on our kids when they're not putting their shoes away, not cleaning up, telling us off, mouthing off and all this stuff. And it really is interesting how far we've come um, in the whole gambit of therapy. So in your opinion, when did the big shift happen? When did it switch from that um, reactive punishing behavior to wait a second let's change course here and see if we can't engage the child in another way to make them change their behavior because um was it just when we were younger kids were not thought in that light of being intelligent enough to grasp the con the concept of what we were teaching and it was just sort of the only thing a kid understands is being hit or yelled at <laughs> that it's it's really interesting, and I love your question, Todd. And not that that's I, disappeared either, because there are still a lot of people that subscribe to that philosophy, saying in my day we hit kids and they were well behaved, and we wouldn't have all this crazy behavior. But I think, by and large, most people have made the shift. Well, yeah, I, I think a lot of it started, and I'm going to interestingly say, probably of all places, schools in the classroom. Back in my day, and gosh, this is really dating myself here, and I'm, <laughs> I remember sitting in classrooms and the teacher drilling chalk at students, drilling the, the chalk brush, you know, the, yeah. the, the blackboard eraser, the chalk, and nailing somebody in the head with it, smacking a kid with the yardstick, um, stuff like that, the strap. 
And then it became a point where, okay, uh, is this not abuse? And so then you're eliminating it from the public sector uh, of schools because therapists, because I remember, you know, I was doing my, I did my PhD in the 90s, okay, late 90s, uh, but in university in the late 80s and into the 90s doing my undergrad. And interestingly, by the time I got into my master's, which was in the mid, early to mid, actually early 90s, that's where I started to see the shift, Todd, where it was like, okay, um, we started to hear the term children's services, mm. family children's services in the States where I did my master's and PhD, children's aid. We started to hear that stuff. And then it was arising in schools about, okay, should teachers and principals be allowed to spank students, strap them and all that stuff because that is abuse, that is punishment. And so then I think at some point, <laughs> the kids were in the schools uh, where you no longer could do this, but then saying, well, yeah, my mother hits me or my dad hits me, they spank me and they do this. And then the, the, a lot of the schools were then saying, whoa, yeah. you know, you called us uh, the misers that were doing all the reprimanding and, you know, the punishment. And so now the parents are now doing it. So where, you know, what is the fine line here? And I think that's when it started, Todd, to answer your question, back in the 90s. Yeah, I think um, for me, it started even back in the 70s and, and the 80s when I was going through public school and, and high school. I can remember being in high school, high school, probably in 80 or 81, and being smacked across the hand with a ruler by a teacher. You know, and I was like 16, 17 years old, and there's a teacher walking up to you and smacking you across the hand with a ruler. And I'm thinking, huh, that's not right. <laughs> But, I mean, even before that, there were teachers, I can remember back in grade five and grade six when um, I was described as a child who would daydream a lot. I was usually bored in school, so if there's an official diagnosis for that, I've yet to receive one. But I was always thinking big and dreaming and really bored with the two plus two equals four equation. Um, and I can remember a very nice teacher who will remain anonymous, who took the time to sit down with me and just spend some time talking about what was going on for me and if everything was okay. Because, you know, sometimes there's signs like that where teachers will reach out and say, hmm, what's going on at home? What's going on when you leave my class? Absolutely. It's, it's really interesting um, how things really have changed. And, you know, uh, just to go back in the 80s, I remember sitting in high school and watching a teacher after a student in my class that was, you know, known as a bully and always in trouble. And I knew this kid for, like, you know, over a decade, was trying to trip the teacher while the teacher was walking around at the chalkboard trying to write on the chalkboard. And all of a sudden, I just caught the tail end of it. The teacher drop kicked the desk on the kid like it was a field goal. And I remember teachers telling students, take that gum out of your mouth and put it on your nose and you're going to keep it there <laughs> till the end of the class. And it's interesting. That was the 80s. And that is abuse, folks. Well, uh, you do that today, Todd, you're basically, you know, really scarring a kid. I can remember sitting in our drama class in grade eight uh, in middle school, or I guess it was junior high back then. And uh, we were up on the second floor and down below on the first floor outside, there were some kids that were obviously not part of the school and they had a boom box and they were just cranking the music. So my teacher leaned out a couple of times and yelled down and said, guys, turn it off. You know, we're, this is a school. We're, we're learning things. Well, they ignored her. And finally they decided to gesture and, and say something nasty. So she smiles. She goes back in, goes to the, the caretaker's closet, gets a big bucket, fills it up with ice cold water, leans out the window and dumps it on them in their radio. So they come tearing up into the school 
and they're all, you know, angry and everything. And she and the principal, who was a very small man in stature, but very big in many ways, stood up to them and just sort of walked them out of the school. And I thought, okay, that was kind of a dangerous thing to do. But, you know, again, looking back at that was, it wasn't abuse, but it was it uh, acceptable behavior for a public school teacher? I don't know. And interestingly enough, before we go to break, and actually I'm going to, we can bring this up with uh, Angie. I saw something just a week ago, caught it on the Newswire and Facebook, that in some schools now in the States, they're going to allow teachers to possibly carry guns. <laughs> wonder how that's going to go over. Well, it's funny, you know, like um, people say the cure for uh, drunk driving is more alcohol. And it's like, what? You know, it's like you, that you just you don't go there. It just doesn't make sense. So if you have a problem with guns, why would you add more guns? It's like adding fuel to the fire. That's just my opinion. People don't jump all over me. But you got to sit back and wonder and go, hmm, is that really the answer? Uh, having teachers who are supposed to be doing one thing expected to be marksmen and, and, you know, marksmanship and take these people out. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine that? Teacher having a bad day, not enough sleep, a little edgy, too much caffeine. And going through a divorce or a infidelity at home and they're edgy and, uh, you know, pulling a gun out and capping somebody just because they're in a bad mood. It's just a recipe for disaster. But anyways, we'll get to that after the break. We'll pedal it on uh, Annie, see if she likes it. Poor Annie. You are, of course, listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio. We enjoy this conversation. We enjoy this conversation. Hopefully you do. Let us know. We're here 24-7 via social media. We'll be right back. The music you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green. Peter Andrew Sacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting? Facebooking or online dating, maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. matters of the mind where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week and what matters most to us now is ellen gamble who is the ceo and founder of the center for abuse awareness abusehurts.com definitely check out the site folks it is one of the best in my humble opinion the best in all of canada so ellen thank you for joining us again 
thank you. Thank you so much. Look forward to speaking to you every week. So, it's not too far off. Um, October 22nd to October 24th is the Healing Journeys Conference. So, people can still sign up, get information for that. Um, anything you'd like to add to that? Well, just that it's nice that uh, we're, we're getting starting to get a really good response. It was a little slow, but I think, you know, once... Uh, once October hit, then uh, all of a sudden we've been really getting a lot of registrations, which is encouraging. And as I mentioned last week, it's not just for the victims themselves, but also for family members. So um, I, I think it would help a lot of people understand the trauma and then give them resources. I'm looking at the website again, which is abusehurts.ca, and on the 22nd on Friday at 7 um, at Humber College, and again, you have to pre-register for this. Um, um, well, it's just free and open to the public, which is kind of cool. Free parking. You've got mm -hmm. a, a movie that's being shown. It's it's a recovery film by Jordan, male survivor, dare to dream event. What what is the impact of of someone that would come to that event and see that film? Well, it's powerful. Jordan, his story alone is a really powerful story. Um, he is a man that. Um, was in our men's group for a long time. Now he really um, helps as a facilitator as well. But um, he was sexually abused as a boy and ended up in male prostitution. And just his life was totally destroyed. And how he came back and how he is not only, you know, surviving but thriving and, and then giving back and um, his you know, his work is media. But the other really interesting story about Jordan is that, um, <clears throat> like a lot of victims, they don't talk to anybody about it, their family, their friends, their wives. They don't know what happened. And one of our programs is called Huggum's Hope Memorial, where we actually bury abandoned babies. There's two or three newborns a year that are discarded in the garbage or in a dumpster or whatever left outside to the elements and um for us it's the earliest stage of abuse so we we actually had the a little boy um that was left out in the woods in Timmins, and um so i asked we name the babies always and then their name goes on a monument we have a service um you know to show that this child mattered mm. and was part of our community even if it took a few short breaths but so the men named the little boy um, Baby Leaf um, because it was found in the woods, but they named him L-E-I-E-F, you know, the mm -hmm. different spelling. But then I asked for a pallbearer uh, to, to carry the casket, and so it happened to be Jordan. But the interesting part of this story is it was front page in the Toronto Star, and there's Jordan carrying this little casket um, in the church, in the in this chapel, and um, his family didn't know that he was a survivor. That's how they found out, because it was in the paper, and he was quite open about it. He was interviewed, and he was, you know, open about that he was a male victim, and that's how he came to be carrying this casket. And what? that's how his family found out that he was uh, had been sexually abused as a boy. Was he uh, hoping that they would find out? Was that the way he wanted to deliver that message, or was it just he didn't really care? It was just, I'm, I'm on a path to healing, and, and whatever comes from this is what comes. 
Yeah, I think that's probably the second. I think yeah. at that point, um, probably like my guess, and I don't know for sure if I'm, I'm saying yeah. that, but as a lot of victims know, you're afraid to tell your family because they won't believe you. Yeah. Um, so, and so I, maybe that was, you know, well, if you don't believe me, send the Toronto Star front page, you know, now maybe you'll believe me. Um, yeah, it was powerful. That's how his family found out. But I told that story just to emphasize that there's so many people that may be listening now that you haven't told anybody. And you, you have so much shame because you think it's, you know, just if this happened to you and who else. Come to this conference and find out just how many people have been affected, but also just how much healing you can get. And, um, and then go on to help other people. I, I think our healing isn't just meant for ourselves. We're then meant to, you know, play it forward and, and be a support. And I know myself and probably a lot of your listeners as well, when I was going through it, I remember thinking, if I could just see one person that this happened to and they're okay now, that will give me hope. And I did. Someone reached out to me and then I went to a conference very similar and found out, oh my gosh, this has happened to a lot of people. And it really gave me hope. And I think one of the major you know, things that we want to come out of the conference is hope, that people realize that they're going to be okay. So, Ellen, can I ask you this? What if somebody comes to the conference and I guess they're raw, meaning they've never come out uh, and talked about it, and while they're there, uh, you know, it's whatever was below the surface comes right to the surface and they really need to get this out. Like they need to talk to somebody. Are there going to be any uh, referrals there or any counselors or mentors that are able to talk to anybody that day there? Yeah, um, I, I'm sure that we, you know, there'll be roving therapists. There'll be people there because as you know, Peter, people may get triggered um, I, I mean, I would always say it when you're, for instance, if you're watching this video and you get triggered and you're feeling like it's oh, too hard to watch, leave, you know, go out in the hall. People will be there to support them and there will be resources available and obviously resources for people to connect afterwards if, if they don't feel at the time. Um, this is really a lot about information and what's available. I, I always caution people uh, about being triggered. As you know, Peter, it's, it's quite possible if you haven't dealt with a lot of it. Or even if you have, it still may be a little triggering. And you just have to take care of yourself and and leave. Come back when it's over, even. Don't you, you leave totally, what? but just remove yourself from the room for a while. It, um, it really it, it does happen a lot, Ellen. I know myself. Um, as a professor and a lecturer where I've sat in an auditorium and I was talking and of all things it was anorexia nervosa and mm -hmm. one of the members in the audience literally flipped out and what we found out later is that the reason she developed anorexia nervosa she was being sexually abused and developed you know the self-starvation the restrictive eating and all that stuff to deny her mm -hmm. femininity and she had never addressed the abuse yeah well, we know that the amount of, I believe the statistic is, you can maybe verify it, Peter, but I think the statistic is 85% of people with eating disorders have been sexually abused or there's a connection. I don't know if that 
is a figure you have, but that's something I've heard consistently. Yeah, I don't know the exact number, but you're absolutely right. It is a very, you know, excruciatingly high number. Yeah, yeah. So I always, again, I would just, in any situation, if something affects you more than 15 seconds, I, I studied with a lady named Elizabeth Cooper Roth that did the, you know, five stages of grief and dying. And I'll never forget. And she said, if anything affects you more than, say, 15, 30 seconds, then you need to look at that. And especially if you're feeling really uncomfortable and, and feeling a panic coming up or anything, you need to take yourself away, remove yourself from the room. I mean, but obviously people are going to be discussing this, it's what it's all about, but it's a safe place and you have permission to leave the room and, you know, uh, get yourself centered, get people to help you get centered. Um, but it's not a bad thing that you're being triggered. It means you're, you're, it's there and you, you know, you've got to deal with it. So it's, and, and you, you don't die. You feel like you're going to die, but you don't die. Um, it's a horrible feeling when you're first starting off, but I think if you're in a safe place and other people have gone through it and are going through it, it, it just, I think, encourages you a lot just to have, you know, peer support around you. It's, um, in, in, in hearing you talk about the, the movie, it, it brought me back quite a few years ago when I, um, I got back together with a girlfriend. We had been apart for some time and, and we decided to go out for a date and, and uh, have dinner and, and just see if we could rekindle what we had. And she said, I'd really like to see a movie. And I said, OK, what movie? And I believe the title was Sleeping with the Enemy, which is a, a movie about domestic abuse and uh, with Julia Roberts and the, the extent that she goes to extricate herself from that relationship. And I remember, I don't know, within the first 20 minutes or half an hour, my ex-girlfriend, who I was hoping would be my future girlfriend, um, was cowering in her seat and flinching. And I was like, what? what what's going on here? Um, I thought she was ill, but then she said, we need to leave. And I said, OK. So uh, we left and she was silent for about an hour. And finally, we we're sitting in her place. And she finally said, I... Um, have recently left an abusive relationship and uh, apparently that movie really triggered me um, so we, we spent a long time talking about it but you're right it, I mean it can just be a trigger for someone even that they, they realize that it's happened and they're on the road to recovery or, or healing seeing something that powerful can really um, bring back those emotions like they happened five minutes ago exactly and and the important thing is that you take care of yourself and you don't have to stay and watch the whole movie. If you're feeling really uncomfortable, leave, come back to the other session. So, you know, as survivors, we never learn how to take care of ourselves. Um, so that's something that we will emphasize that please, if you're feeling uncomfortable, you, you first of all have to take care of yourself and give yourself permission to do that. It's interesting you just said about that lady, uh, Todd, because I had a lady coming yesterday that came to get a bunch of stuff for her, I said, her new apartment, and she was picking some stuff up, and then I said, do you need furniture? And it turned out she had nothing. She had two beds and an old couch, so we're gonna totally furnish her place, get the interior designer in there, and just totally fix it up for her. But um, when I told her everything we were doing, she started to cry, and I, I of course, I hugged her, and. I said, it's okay, you're going to be okay. I said, she said, well, I'm, I said, you know, she said, I'm just leaving a domestic 
abusive relationship. And I said, oh, well, I, bet I know, and I, it's good you're, you've laughed. And she said, no, this is my third. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I said, I hope you're in counseling now, too, are you, so you don't do it again. She said, I am. And as we know, I mean, that just triggered that thought that so many people, even that will be at this event, ended up, if you're sexually abused, if you've been abused, Lots of times you end up in these really domestic abusive situations. So it just covers everything. A wound, it, it, it just takes a lot of victims in different ways. So there could even be issues around domestic abuse that come out as well. And that's okay. That You know, you can't heal what you don't reveal. You've got you've to first know what it is and where it's coming from. And then you get support and help and therapy to, to work it through. But it, it's all, the healing is all so, so possible. Wow. Yeah. I, um, I realize that there are a lot of people that are in these situations that have not, uh, have not had an opportunity to deal with it. And, and as you said, you know, the, it's a funny thing. There's almost a stigma on men that they aren't capable of being abused that because they're big and strong and they're boys that uh-huh. none of this stuff actually happens. And, and then there's this, they will it down. They just say, no, um, they either acknowledge that, oh, it was a dream and it never really happened. And, or if it does happen, it's like, that's it. I'm not telling another soul because I'm a boy, I'm a guy and these things uh-huh. don't happen. And we don't, we don't, uh, acknowledge that publicly. Yeah. Well, this is a safe place. They're going to see other guys acknowledge it. They'll see other guys cry. They'll see other guys, you know, express how angry they are and it's all okay. You know, Great. That, that, that's, that's what it's all about. Awesome. So it is again happening October the 22nd to the 23rd or 24th? Uh-huh. There's 24th. The, yeah. There's days. F- One day is for professionals. Right. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And yeah, no, it's good. where can they find out information if they'd like to register? Uh, on our website, abusehurts.ca. And I just really encourage people, even if they can't come to the workshop, come to the free evening and just get information. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's a great place to probably just go and, and feel you're part of something. I mean, it's not a uh-huh. great it's not like you're um, you're going to celebrate something. But in a way, it is you're celebrating. You're celebrating that there's some potential freedom down the road for you from what you've gone through. Absolutely. And hope. That's the important yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Ellen Thank Campbell. you for letting everybody know about it. I know you've spoken the last couple of weeks. I appreciate it. Um, but I think people are, your your program is amazing. And um, I want to thank you for, for speaking about difficult subjects on air. But we know how many wounded people there are. And so I, I'm very grateful that you're doing this show. We are um, happy to be doing it for sure. Ellen Campbell from the CCAA, abusehurts.ca is the website. Thank you for joining us again, and we will talk to you again next week. Okay, thank you. Have a great week. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio. Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 26 
36 years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross team at 416-230-8500. Welcome to my new book, Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths, which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places, rather about history in the Niagara region. This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812, between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. Each chapter covers a different type of landmark which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forts, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and visit our website, www.niagara'smosthaunted.com. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. folks and welcome back to matters of the mind where everything matters your minds and our minds each and every week and with that said what's mattering most to us right at the moment is we're having technical difficulties a landing annie vox so she will probably most likely not be joining us today as we've got a wonderful guest later uh which is our beloved ellen campbell from the center for abuse awareness and she's got a lot of great things to talk about today and we definitely want to get her on our show um as we have her each and every week and for those folks supporting the Center for Abuse Awareness, abusehurts.com, keep it coming because they've got a great conference upcoming, which is on abuse. And Alan's going to be talking a lot about it today because abuse affects so many people, including men, which she'll talk about. And with that said, folks, we will definitely, hopefully, try to get Annie Fox on at a later date. So we've been talking to Alan over the weeks about... Um about abuse and um you know i've always been thinking about it from a man's point of view that um you know i suffered mild spousal abuse when i was married before um, nothing major but still i mean it's just something that is not very well known so and, and i'm sure there's a lot a lot of men and, and as we know from from the good work that the ccaa does and the martin cruz foundation memorial that that there are men that suffer deeply and greatly as a therapist, so someone would approach the CCAA and, and say they need help um, and they get redirected to someone like you for therapy, what, what does that feel like? Does, um, what's the emotions that you go through when you've got someone new coming to you for the first time? I guess every situation is different, but how do you approach it? Well, it's, it's a really interesting um, 
set of circumstances because first of all, Todd, you know, a lot of people will pigeonhole and stereotype abuse as all being the same. Well, you know, abuse is abuse. And yes, abuse is abuse. I will give that much credence, but it's the perception and the victimization on how it is done to somebody where everybody perceives their abuse differently. So in the past, I've worked with fellows, guys. I recall one fellow that was suicidal. He had tried a fifth attempt at suicide. And I had seen him, and it was abuse, and it was committed by an older man when he was uh, a kid. And he had never um, overcome it. Uh, it was, I believe, an estranged family member that was doing it to him. And, you know, when he was speaking to his parents about it, they all said, well, no, you're making this up, you're fabricating, you possibly couldn't, to the point where this fellow shut it all down. He went down in lockdown mode, or as psychoanalysts would say, he was in repressed mode, where, you know, you push it all down below the surface. And what would happen is that he'd be able to keep it there only so many times, before the thoughts become overwhelming, the sense of anxiety, the low sense of self-worth, the depression would kick in, and it made the perfect storm for his suicide attempts. And I, I recall Todd asking him, you know, you, you've attempted five times, um, and all suicide should be taken seriously, no doubt about it. Suicide is very... Uh, serious. Even somebody who's talking about it should be taken serious. But one of the things I had asked him, and it's a fair question, is, you know, five times now, um, and we ask in the business, so to speak, how are you going to do it? And, you know, the person will tell you in advance, uh, if they, you know, if they're talking about it, they're going to kill themselves. I would always ask them, why are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? How are you going to do it and where are you going to do it? The four questions to see the severity of it. And I recall asking, I had asked this guy, well, how are you going, how did you determine each time you were going to do this? And he said, well, um, I wanted, you know, I never really put a lot of thought into that. And each time it was the same level of violence towards himself, self-abuse. Uh -huh. So he never escalated into anything harmful as extremely harmful as you know it's all harmful I'm sorry yeah. for, all harmful and when I'm saying levels of harm um, like jumping off a building jumping in front of a train shooting himself hanging himself each time he tried it with pills so the reason I put that out there to him is I said do you think you continually do it this way because this is a constant cry for help because you really don't want to die you want somebody to find you um, to save you and he I remember him crying down and breaking down and he yelled bingo he goes because I can't tell anybody else I'm suicidal because I was sexually assaulted abused physically abused by so-and-so in my family and um, I used the suicides as a way of wanting to talk about it but he goes each time they would save me they would put me into you know 72 hour holding I'd see a psychiatrist I'd be put on meds I'd be on you know Zoloft, uh, lorazepam, all this kind of stuff, where then it was I was numb, and then we'd go back to once I was off the meds, back to this. Right. So in his situation, it was a slow, insidious disease that was eating away at him, but he really wanted help, Todd. He just didn't know who to talk to about it, 
And here's the harder part, Todd, is exactly what to say and how to say it. Um, and I asked him point blank, why are you, are we seeing each other? And I had to see him because of the, the most recent suicide attempt he had. And I asked him, why are you able to talk about this now or whatever? And he just said, you know what, Doc, I'm desperate. Hmm. He goes, I don't really want to kill myself. I don't want to live the way I'm living, but in a roundabout way, I don't want to have to kill myself because, and he uses words, some bastard molested me when I was a kid and all this stuff. You know, they go on living their life, whatever. Why should I have to give up my life? And he got to a point, Todd, of anger. And it was the actual, the anger component that brought him to see me. That's why his was so much different than others, um, depending on what level they are in the abuse or how long it's been. So there's two things I heard I want to ask you about. One is you said the the what, where, why, when, and the why, or sorry, not the why, but the how is important because, which I missed in that for, but anyways, the how is important because you said it sort of grades it in terms of, of um, what, severity or in terms of them actually doing it, or you just want to know so that you can talk them out of it, so to speak. I want to know for a couple of reasons. First of all, it is, uh, I, I view all suicide talks and attempts as all being equally severe. Okay. Now, what I want to know is the means to carry it out. And I also want to know the means, the potential means if the person is not functioning, yeah. um, they're depressed, or they plan on taking somebody with them. If they've got a gun, they can do that. Yeah, okay. Versus and, pills. And the other thing I want to ask you about that is... I heard a statistic a long time ago. I don't know if it's official or if it's just something that I heard in the course of a conversation, but I want to get your impression of it. It was told to me a very long time ago that when women threaten suicide, it is more likely to be not attention grabbing, but a more a cry for help. Whereas if a man talks about it, they're more likely to see it through. Is that true from your knowledge or is that just a lame statistic? In today's generation, I would say it's more of a trite statistic. Um, the man, the, the whole male thing, it was, the, you know, the mystique survived, you know, around the Jimmy Dean sort of character rebel without a cause, that if they're going to do it back in the day, they would use a more violent means, such as a gun, such as jumping off a building in front of a train, hanging themselves. So... The myth with this is, is that the way a male would attempt to kill themselves would be more violent, therefore they would be more successful at it, whereas if a woman talked about it, um, or did carry out suicide, she was more likely to use pills or slash her wrists and bleed out, and part of that had to do with her appearance. She didn't want to look ugly for you know her showing at the, wow. of all th at the funeral, yeah. and that is a reality. But that's where the, the myth came from or the, you know, the illusion where, oh, if a guy's talking about it, he's more serious than a woman who wants to be talked out about it. No, it was more of the outcome where a man is going to, a male is going to use more violent means or a female would use, um, you know, more passive means. Um, now, here's where the interesting thing comes. In today's generation, uh, the gender roles have shifted to a great degree where there's so much androgyny where, once again, I will say this over and over and over, you have to take every single suicide attempt seriously. And I remember this, I was talking to a very famous, um, down my way, um, radio show, uh, a disc jockey, and we talked about this after Kurt Cobain killed himself. 
And I remember the follow of, you know, the copycats in Quebec that started killing themselves and other parts where, you know, there was a sense of martyrdom where they viewed this um, as a way of, okay, I'm going to solve my problems the same way Cobain did. And I remember this, you know, this disc jockey going on and on about the show painting Kurt Cobain as the second coming of John Lennon, that the world got, you know, screwed over, that we're not going to get to see his talent, this Beatles, you know, his his iconic, uh, you know, yeah. influence on the music industry, Todd. And I thought, you're painting a, ba a wrong picture because you've got influential kids that are now looking at their martyr, their hero has been taken away. And if they really are at that mindset, you need to talk to them. And I remember them then setting up a hotline on the radio show, on the radio saying, if you've got, you're thinking about doing this, following what Cobain did, please call in. We've got therapists ready to talk to you. Yeah, I've heard of that before because they're worried about copycats and especially where, where kids are, <coughs> sorry, mesmerized by the star power of someone. And I'm sure the same thing happened with Amy Winehouse a few years ago when she unfortunately had her overdose. Um, I, I would think there'd be a lot of people that would idolize her and then know that she's in pain and then go, wow, that's the way out. You know, you just do it, quote unquote, accidentally. Absolutely. And in fact... A lot of individuals will view it as a solution because they've had it run in the family. I've heard, you know, somebody say, well, it's heredity. You know, the father did it, the grandfather or the aunt, the mother or something like that. So suicide runs in the family. It must be a gene for suicide. And no, that's not the case. It's two things that go on, unfold. Actually, three. One of them is learned helplessness, that the situation is not going to get any better. Uh, that's how the person's proceeding it in a negative light. Secondly, they may be suffering from depression, which could be clinically um, in the individual, which could be passed on in the genes. And then the third part is, is they've looked up to their primary caregiver or somebody within the family as a knowledgeable person who solved their depression or their anxiety that way, and that's where that comes from. So I want to you know, warn people out there listening to that, that suicide is not uh, a hereditary gene, that it's not passed on a gene pool, but depression can be. I'm going to put you in the hot seat for a second. I'm going to take you back to... Oh, I don't know. When was it? 1992, maybe, when the PMRC, or was it earlier, was talking about putting all these wonderful stickers on music because of the lyrics and the content. And, of course, it was violent. And, and specifically, some bands' names were, were dragged out into the press um, for having sentiments that might encourage kids to kill themselves and backwards lyrics and all of this nonsense. Ozzy Osbourne on his one of his first two albums had a song called Suicide Solution. Judas Priest was dragged through the mud for their lyrics. Do you think that these kinds of um, creative outlets for musicians can encourage someone to entertain suicide? Hmm. That's a great question, Todd. It's like the chicken or the eggs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my answer is... You know, if you wanted to just kind of like point a finger at Ozzy, Marilyn Manson, um, you know, for his, you know, people are blaming him for the shootups in Columbine. Um, Alice Cooper, which Alice Cooper used to laugh at the whole backbasking thing and the satanic thing, going, are you kidding me? And the same thing even with the Beatles, the whole thing, you know, that Paul McCartney supposedly, you know, he blew yeah. his mind out in a car, you know, he died. Yep. 
I mean, uh, Depeche Mode. I listen to Depeche Mode, and I go, man, that's dark stuff. You know, I mean, never mind the the metal guys, but Depeche Mode just sounds like a guy, uh, some guys that are really mopey and having a terrible life most of the time. And, you know, what would that do to someone who's really not in a great spot? I know some people would probably listen to it and go, oh, man, somebody else is feeling it, and I'm going to get through life because they're still there doing it. And others might listen to it and go, yeah, there's no future. And you know what's funny? I'm glad you bring that up because I actually, by the way, folks, I am a huge Depeche Mode fan and Smith's fan. And Morrissey used to be accused of that, you know, singing morbid stuff, even to a degree. Some of U2 songs, the political stuff was pretty morbid. And being a musician back in the past, playing in a band back in the day, we covered some of that stuff, which was kind of funny. And I remember people saying, well, that's kind of really down music. Like, don't you think it's giving the wrong message? And, and I remember hearing people lately saying, well, what about country western music? Does that lead to, you know, because it's all about the guy whose wife's left him, the dog's dead, he's lost his job and all this stuff. So I think the key point with this is it's not the medium that leads somebody to commit suicide or do something violent like go and shoot up the school. Rather, it's the propensity within the individual that their wires are crossed. They're not, uh, their cognitive perceptions, their cognitive scripts are really faulty. And they're not thinking clearly. And perhaps they're now latching onto something that is vibrating at the same energy level of their thinking process, which is negative. And here's the point, I guess, Todd, that you're getting at, is if they really emulate Ozzy, uh, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Black Sabbath, whoever it is, and they're relating to them, then possibly it could have the potential to kick them over the edge, but that's the same as the Jim Jones. Why did you drink the Kool-Aid? Because you believe Jim Jones was the Messiah. Or the Branch Davidians went to war with the ATF because they thought David Koresh was the Messiah. Or with Bo, the leader of the Heaven's Gate group, they thought they were all catching the hale Bob Comet, so they all killed themselves. So a lot of it is is the irrational, uh, incapacitated ability to rationalize and have, you know, cognitive functioning. And so that's where I could say the music could be a catalyst to somebody who would already do something really bizarre and possibly harmful, even killing themselves. Yeah, I was going to comment about that with, with two things. One being that there, there you know, I, I can even remember when I was young, we personally we're listening more to our musical heroes for life direction than our parents because our parents weren't cool and and you know they had really old ideas about things and and then Ozzy would say you know booze is the answer or whatever and I'm not blaming him but you know they had those messages that you know go have a good party and everything will be great um and as far as your comment about country music yeah I don't know if it's as dangerous because I think the worst I would do listening to a George Jones track would be, you know, probably drink too much and get on my riding mower and go into town <laughs> to get some booze. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't really matter what type of creative outlet it is, whether it's a movie or a song or, or a video, um, you get out of it what your radar is picking up, I guess. Absolutely. I listen to some country. I like some country music. In fact, Hey, I am, I like Brooks and Dunn. I like, uh, what's his name there? Uh, Keith Urban, yeah. I, you know, there's a lot of good music. I like some classical music, and you got people that would say, well, it's stuff like listening to Brahms and Beethoven, dark music, that could do it. So once again, it's not really the medium that will lead it, but it's rather the mental capacity and the thoughts that are going through somebody's mind. And, you know, this is something I do want to bring up with Ellen, because the conference is great, and they're going to have speakers there. So a potential concern is, let's say, hey, somebody has not resolved it. It's like you said, Todd, somebody has 
got this abuse, they've never really faced it on or spoken about it. So it's potential. You know, a person sitting in a conference could go, oh my gosh, that speaker is a trigger for everything that's going on in me that's happened in the past that I've been dealt with. And they could literally go into a full-blown, you know, uh, recapitulating it and reliving it and having a meltdown. It's kind of like a kettle that's on the stove and, and the heat keeps going up and down and they, they start boiling over and then they cool off. And then one point they just blow, you know, it's just that stimuli just keeps tapping them until they've had enough and they blow. So we'll have to bring up that with Liz. Sorry, we'll have to bring that up with Ellen next week for sure. We are uh, flat out of time. The show just blazed by. And so, folks, keep the questions coming. Uh, you got anything you want to talk to us about? Please. Don't hesitate. We will address it on our show. And next week, we've got a great guest, Dr. Penny Noyes. And Penny is going to be talking about their new, her new book and a lot of the great things that are going on in life and ways of helping you because you matter to us. And welcome to Always Matters of the Mind. Yep. You matter every week, Wednesday at 8 p.m. And if you miss it, it's podcast the next day. We will catch you on Matters of the Mind next Wednesday at 8 p.m. on Listen Up Talk Radio. Catch you next week. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Get in touch with him on his website, petersacco.com, or find his contact page on listenup at talk-radio.ca. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio, on Twitter at listenuptalk. Thanks for listening and sharing our posts. We'll catch you next week. Is here and now my youth